Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We are actually recording this on Sunday night, uh, the 18th, so we might be a little punchy. Um, and you're just going to have to roll with it. Uh, with me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, our October issue is up and available at commentary.org. Please go there and read and luxuriate in it. And you're going to have to subscribe to the magazine in order to fully luxuriate in it because we don't give you that many bites at the Apple before we make you subscribe. Sorry, there was a little noise there. Um, I told you it's raw. Uh, Joe Biden was on 60 Minutes last night, which is to say tonight, which is to say a couple of hours ago as we're recording this, but it's last night as you're listening to it. Uh, it was his first interview in, get this, his first one-on-one interview in 223 days. Um, and as I... Uh, Here's my question for you. So uh, he did fine. Um, Abe and I watched. I don't know. If, I, I think Noah didn't. I don't know if Christine got to watch it. I if was I, eating steak. No, I'm sorry. Okay, you were eating steak, and <laughs> Noah was probably cooking steak. And Abe and I watched it, and he was fine. Which raises two possible questions. One of which is, it's weird that the White House won't let him go out and do these interviews, or he doesn't want to do them when he does them perfectly fine. Or does it take him 223 days to 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 summon up uh, the appropriate level of comfort and acuity simply to get through uh, such a conversation with uh, someone like Scott Pelley, who was, I have to say, uh, more than ordinarily obsequious, um, tried to ask semi-tough questions but a lot of the voiceover and stuff like that was pretty horrifyingly suck-uppy like he said at one point something like he's one of the longest serving politicians in washington and you know maybe this says something for know-how uh that kind of thing um it's but but the answer is, is definitely the latter it's it's not it's not that the, the, the White House has been making some vast mistake and in not letting him go out and do interviews this whole time. This the entire thing. Look, and by the way, I agree. I think he did perfectly fine. I mean, I think he's very sort of soft and low energy as a presence. But but I'm talking about the substance he did. He did fine. Um, but the entire production of it was designed to make him look just fine. This was not the the there were it was a version of hard questions that were chosen in order to sort of not get pegged with saying you didn't ask him anything tough you know yet you, you had to ask about the economy so he asked about the economy had to ask about his age you asked about his age there was nothing about sort of you know really trying to get him to 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 speak to um some of the misleading things he said and done uh over over the time that he's been in the white house you know none of that no real pushing and it's a very heavily edited produced piece you know they went with him to the to the auto show prior to the interview this was sort of put together as an almost kind of mini documentary on the um sort of String of successes, which which is the the other thing that that Scott Pelley kept hammering. Um, uh, this was a sort of this was a sort of um, a kind of you know look back on hey maybe Joe Biden isn't that bad production. Yeah, he's had he's had uh, a great summer, uh, said Pelley. Uh, things were great, and then I had this bad day. He had this bad day last week because he had uh, he was celebrating. Uh, his efforts, and then the inflation number came in, and it was just uh, terrible. So how does he respond to that? And Biden said, look, uh, the inflation rate month to month was just up an inch, hardly at all. And Pelly said, it's 8.3% annually. And Biden said, yeah, but guess where we are? Past several months, it hasn't spiked. 
We created all these jobs and prices have gone down in the energy sector. So he had a sort of ready-made answer for the inflation question that isn't good, but it's an answer, I suppose. No, it proves um, exactly what we've been saying about the Democrats' response to inflation, which is that they they talk about inflation in the abstract because they're not the people actually feeling the effects of it, at least the leadership. And he spoke. I mean, I did that is one snippet a friend actually had sent me that I saw, even though I didn't see the entire interview with just question marks. And then that that little clip. And the question is, like, how how can you say that if you're speaking to the American people right now? Because that is not the experience of the American people with regard to inflation. Well, he said, look, you're acting like uh, all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2 percent. The highest in my lifetime. But yeah, let's let's go yeah. with that. Yeah, not a big deal. Yeah. He is uh, like very, very old. So for him, you know, whatever, just another inflation yeah. spike. Um, so he said that I, I, hey, just it, this isn't right on the top. I mean, but I, yeah. it just has to be mentioned before I forget it. One of the comical things about the treatment that that Biden got here was and when they went from the sort of formal interview to the to the to the Oval Office to sort of chat, you know, like 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 two guys on about the state of the country, while um, Scott Pelley was despairing over the fact that lawmakers now demonize their political opponents as as human beings, you know, Scott Scott Pelley, I'm paraphrasing, said something like, you know, it used to be that people would come to Washington and they would disagree with each other and say, well, you have bad ideas, and now they say you're bad. Um, no mention here of Joe Biden's uh, red lit, you know, uh, 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 MAGA fascism uh, speech uh, on this on this point here. Yeah. Uh, J- Jim Crow 2.0. Right. Uh, right. They're going to put you all in, uh, put you all back in chains. Uh, I know that was that was 10 years ago, but still very fresh fresh in my mind um he did declare the pandemic over and noah um one thing that does strike me he said yes the pandemic is over um is if the pandemic's over then the emergency is over doesn't the policy on retiring uh student debt doesn't it require the pandemic emergency (laughs) that's a good point yeah that's gonna make nobody happy um because a lot of people don't want the pandemic to be over this uh reuters headline quote biden says pandemic is over even as death toll and costs mount so it's very callous for you to even suggest as much and then on the other side of the equation well the pandemic is over why are we ejecting service members from the branches for not having a vaccine because the pandemic's over why would you need a vaccine so um yeah there's going to be hard-edged responses to this on both both sides. What, what's interesting is that it's just not making a lot of news. Clearly, it was intended to be the newsmaking part of this. Um, this I, I don't uh, know this interview. I'm not sure that's the case, because according to one thing I read, uh, people in the administration were surprised that he said it. So uh, uh, the idea that it was, you know, sort of planned, he does go off, you know, he does go off uh, half cocked. This is uh, why but, I remember but, the, the Easter Bunny had to drag him away from reporters during the White House lawn Easter egg roll this last last yeah. Easter for that very reason. But look, let me read you another interesting story about the pandemic being over. OK, so this is from the New York Post uh, Saturday, I believe. Uh, 850 more unvaxxed NYC teachers aides fired for not com- uh, come complying with mandate okay the city department of education has asked another 850 teachers and classroom aides bring the total to nearly 2,000 school employees fired for failure to comply with the vaccine mandate increasingly struck down in court about 1300 doe employees who took a year's unpaid leave with benefits agreed to show proof of covid vaccination by september 5th or be deemed to have voluntarily resigned um now i had no problem in some sense, with vaccine mandates, when the policy first started, for this reason, which is that the vaccines were um, were preventing the transmission of COVID, the Delta variant and the original. The vaccines do not prevent the transmission of the Omicron variant. Even this booster, 
that uh, we're all now supposed to get, apparently, uh, for our fifth shot, um, is a treatment or a, uh, a prophylactic treatment for the Omicron variant, but it does not promise or there is no guarantee or anything of it not of, of it uh, interfering with the spread of the vaccine. There is no argument, moral argument any longer for a vaccine mandate. The argument for a vaccine mandate is it's necessary to prevent you from getting COVID from somebody who refused to get vaccinated. This is now no longer the case because you can be vaccinated and still get Omicron and they can be vaccinated and still spread Omicron. And therefore, vaccine mandates are now morally senseless. They are simply a badge of compliance with a set of ideas about COVID that, I, as again, I think were true before the Omicron variant, or a lot of them were true, though I st still don't like mandates particularly. But... Um, so Biden says the mandate is over. Great. So maybe he should um, tell all of his psychotic followers to stop masking two-year-olds or demanding that two-year-olds and toddlers be masked. Right. So that that actually was a line that struck me because he said, oh, we know as evidence for why the pandemic's over. He mentioned, well, no one's wearing masks anymore. And, and I thought, you know, in fact, your your administration is insisting that these toddlers and Head Start programs continue to wear masks. And there are still children being masked in these situations. So in that sense, it's not over. And he, and he did kind of want to have his cake and eat it, too, because he said the pandemic is over. I mean, COVID is still a problem. I'm like, OK, well, I guess that well, he's drawing a distinction about still yeah, a problem, but like, it's not an emergency or problems. Right. right. Many you know? problems. I mean, but I just think it's asking toddlers is a problem in my opinion yeah. no, but, that, that no, could but be I, stopped. But I do think that there's a real discussion to be had here about what it means that the president of the United States said the, the pandemic is over. If the pandemic is over, he cannot pursue policies using emergency powers granted him by the existence of a pandemic. And I believe, I know there were two justifications for the student loan uh, forgiveness. Uh, one was the HEROES debt Act. Debt transfer, debt transfer. I refuse to call it forgiveness. Debt transfer, right. But uh, one was the HEROES Act of 2003, which was an effort to help people who enlisted in the military and could not pay back their student loans. So he was, you know, stretching that beyond the bounds of all realistic meaning. And and the fact that he maintained some form of emergency power during the pandemic. And you can't, he can't just say the pandemic is over. Well, like there are policy implications to the president saying the pandemic is over. We are heading into the fall. It's very possible that there'll be some sort of spike uh, going to the fall and the winter, um, as there has been um, the, the the past two years, peaking sometime, I don't know, after Christmas. Um, at that point, he could say, well, we have to do what we have to do. When I said the pandemic was over, it was over then. But now... But 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 now we've got to deal with this and we, we may have to deal with these things from from here on here on out, you know, so, so some clumsy effort to finesse it. He could. Anyway, I, I, I that that is one area in which the the implications of the interview may may have a longer tail than than he anticipated that they would be or that any of us anticipate that they, they would be. And. He just doesn't want COVID to be an issue. I mean, the interesting thing is uh, we were last week. There was this kind of floated effort to claim that Democrats were were in good shape on COVID as an issue. You remember David Leonhardt wrote this thing saying Democrats are polling well on COVID and all of that. And um, I just uh, I, I his instinct is to think that that's that he wants to not talk about this. And that is the right instinct because I don't know who, whom it benefits uh, to have the world thinking about COVID and, uh, and the, and the government response to COVID in a way that would seem popular or, you know, uh, 
Okay, but so there's, yeah. I was just going to add one more thing yeah. to that because I think that's an important point. He, the confusion here is, is he did a similar thing with, with the, uh, uh, our, the administration's policy on Taiwan, which I'm sure we'll get to, but, but that's why they don't let him do these interviews because he speaks off the cuff and they have to kind of backpedal for him. They're going to have to do this because there's something sort of callous about his administration declaring COVID is over when we're actually getting right into the thick of this moment where we're seeing all of the studies of the impact on school closures in particular, but on children's mental health, on the general physical health of the country, um, you know, the de declining uh, life expectancy, all of this bad news is really piling up. And if your response is to say, well, yeah, it was really bad. COVID's over. Let's move on. But except for the couple of pet issues that we want to do to, to, to make sure that our particular constituents are paid off in a way that we want to pay them off, like giving them their student loan debt uh, transferred, that actually is a problem. And that's not a great message for him. I mean, and it's also the ambiguity of it, as you said, John, like, is it over or is it not over? Either If you're declaring it over, that's a big announcement, right? He kind of did a version of that before and it and it kind of uh, came back to haunt him. So maybe he's, they're just going to, as Abe said, you know, kind of have it both ways here, but people are really wanting to lay some, hear, hear about some responsibility taking now, right? Who's responsible for the fact that their kids are still behind by years and, and, you know, really suffering. Who's responsible for this declining life expectancy? You can't just say, well, it was the pandemic. They want to point the finger at Trump. They've tried that. It doesn't work. But what we need, we need some response. And I go back to the point that Noah made really early on during this pandemic, which was to predict, and I think this is accurate, people don't want to talk about this, but they do want some sense of closure. If he, if the president of the United States is saying it is over, where's the sense of closure there? There's okay, some lingering no hostility over the how the pandemic ended in the minds of people who are inclined towards the forever pandemic mentality. Uh, as you saw in the New York Times Magazine, big long New York Times Magazine profile on Ron DeSantis that had this bizarre digression, which opened up revealingly um, with this admission that Ron DeSantis had, quote, won the political argument on COVID. And there's some irredentism here because in the next paragraph, they're very frustrated by it. Quote, many, many scientists still hold the governor responsible for a large fraction of Florida's more than 80,000 COVID deaths. So they acknowledged that the open open everything side won the argument and they don't like it they want to revisit that argument um so here's the thing going off a little half-assed here because i don't quite know how because it's commentary this, after dark yeah, that's why john <laughs> i read you this story right susan Elman's story from the new york post about you know two thousand teachers and teachers aides or employees of the Department of Education, including teachers and teachers' aides, who are who are going to be fired next week, uh, you know, after a year's whatever uh, leave, because they uh, are not complying with the vaccine mandate. So um, these are all union members, unionized members of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, would this be the first time in history that a mass firing was not objected to by the union that represents, this is hundreds and hundreds of people being fired on the same day, okay, for not complying with a mandate that no longer makes any sense. Now, we know that Randy Weingarten, the head of the AFT, is like up to her eyeballs in this policy because teachers wanted the schools closed or whatever so they could sit at home and do whatever it was that they wanted to do and she was helping to design Biden administration policy with her with her chihuahua Rochelle Walensky following lap doggily behind her and all of that but um when in history has a labor union leader quietly assented to the mass dismissal of members of her of 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 his or her union because of um a rigid policy that arguably no longer makes sense is this just going to float by with no one making the point that the purpose of labor unions is to protect the employment status of people in the union? Am I, I mean, am I taking crazy pills? 
Isn't that what unions do? Isn't that like job one of unions? Protect seniority, protect contractual obligations, blah, blah, blah. What yeah, sh- and you can sue. Someone's going to sue. Well, I mean, I so far, I mean, so far, the mandates have been upheld. First of all, they did enter, the people in this category entered, made a voluntary, you know, agreed to something, I think, on a piece of paper they signed saying they would do this or they would be separated from their jobs in a year. So it's not like there isn't a thing that they agreed to fully in their own, you know, uh, of their own free will that can be followed through on. I just don't know that a labor union leader has ever simply just gone along with that under these circumstances. Is it that she is too scared to, you know, revisit her own behavior in the pandemic? Are they, you know, are they, do they think they're happy to lose the people who refuse to get vaccinated because they've already decided either they're all crazy or, you know, they're they're secret Trumpers or some, you know, whatever. But that doesn't hold up because that all we've been hearing relentlessly from the teachers unions uh, in the last few months is about the teacher shortage. You know, oh, we got to spend more money. There's a teacher shortage. We got to pay more. We got to hire more teachers. Yeah, well, there's no I mean, teacher shortage in New York City, by the way, because the pop because the school population has has declined by close to 10% since 2019. Abe, go ahead. Well, but she is in this sticky position in the wine garden in the, in the sense that um, she has made the, the teachers very much part of the um, vigilant COVID regime, right? I mean, insincerely, whatever, but, but that is, that's her team here. So, so that's her team. So are so are teachers uh, who who have been fired. So I can understand her not wanting to sort of have to weigh in right now. But they are going. She is going to have to weigh in because, as Noah says, someone's going to sue. And when that happens, she's going to have she's there's there's no way not to comment and not and not to take a side. Okay, well, let me uh, step back for a minute and talk to you guys about our advertisers today so uh noah rothman you sleep on bolin brand sheets i believe am i am i correct about that i do i do you sleep do. on them they are lovely we enjoy them very much there's no other sheet that i use actually and when we do pull out another sheet i'm kind of disappointed about it because these are by far our best sheets i was almost going to get another pair because you should probably have two sets of sheets that you use um but we've just continue to use these so so far so good excellent well you know here's the thing about them that they use the best 100 100 organic uh, organic cotton threads on earth for a superior softness and better night's sleep buttery breathable and impossibly soft to start and get softer with every wash which is why by the way if you just have one set and you keep washing it they get softer not worse like this is a this is a, a uh, you know a plus um and uh The threads are so luxurious, they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. You'll immediately feel the difference of these iconic signature sheets, 100% free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses. They're labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary. And let's talk about ClickUp, the productivity platform that will save you one day a week on work guaranteed. Imagine having one extra day every week you can cook, work on your novel, binge some good reality TV. ClickUp began with the premise that productivity was broken. There were too many tools to keep track of, too many things in entirely separate ecosystems. There had to be a more productive way to get through the daily hustle. ClickUp is the one tool to house all your tasks, projects, documents, goals, spreadsheets, and more. It's built for teams from one to 1,000 plus 
packed with features and customization options that no other productivity tool has, so you can work the way you work best. Whether you're in product management, engineering, sales, marketing, or HR, ClickUp has easy-to-use solutions that create a more efficient work environment. Join the more than 800,000 highly productive teams using ClickUp today and use code COMMENTARY to get 15% off ClickUp's massive unlimited plan for a year, meaning you can start reclaiming your time for under $5 a month. Sign up today at clickup.com, clickup.com, and use code COMMENTARY. Hurry, this offer ends soon. Uh, let's go back to Biden, who uh, the one thing that has pretty significant potential policy implications, and I think actually worked well, oddly, despite the fact you're going to hear a lot of people who are looking to be negative about this say that this is a sign that he's senile and stupid and everything, which is that asked about Taiwan and China, he said the United States would protect and defend China should should, uh, should Taiwan, excuse me, the island, should China invade? And and Scott Pelley said, are you saying that American men and women in uniform will be fighting on Taiwan to protect Taiwan? And he said yes. And then apparently the administration called Scott Pelley later to say that our policy hasn't changed. Biden was clear that he was not changed, said we're not changing the one China policy. We still believe in a one China policy, but Taiwan can do what it wants. This, you know, demented American policy that we think that China and Taiwan are one country, but we will now apparently go to war to defend Taiwan's independence um, and democracy, um, which so we really don't believe in a one China policy, but at least we say we believe in the one China policy because to change our mind and say we don't believe in the one China policy is to create a needless confrontation with China, which is all head up about its one China policy. Anyway, the reason that I say that this isn't so terrible is that it maintains strategic ambiguity. Biden <laughs> says, yes, yes, we'll defend Taiwan. Then the State Department says, no we're not changing our policy. And then somebody else says yes. And somebody else says no. And the Chinese don't know what the hell we are going to do. And that's not a bad thing, but no, I mean, it's ambiguity, but it's ambiguity, yeah. but it's, it's far too generous to call it strategic. Uh, this is gotta be the fourth or fifth time we've had this dance where Joe Biden says very unequivocally that the United States will shed blood in defense of Taiwan sovereignty, though we do not recognize it as an independent state. And then the White House comes along and cleans it up and says, oh, no, this is a, it's your fault for mistaking him as saying that we would actually defend. What did you hear him say? We would defend Taiwan. That's crazy. Um, it's gaslighting. It insults your intelligence. And one of the base levels, uh, you know, really low barrier to entry into the realm of national politics is to be able to say, articulate the policy of your administration effectively and in a way that doesn't necessarily force everybody around you to have to clean up after you. That's just humiliating. So I understand what you're trying to say. You know, yes, this is ambiguous and China doesn't probably doesn't have any idea what our policy is. Sure. I mean, I don't really have any idea what our policy is. I guess, you know, if that's where you're going for mission accomplished, nevertheless, it is humiliating to have a president who doesn't seem to be able to articulate what the administration's policy is in a way that doesn't have leave everybody having to mop up after him. But our, our policy makes no sense. Our historical policy here makes no sense. Well, we one China policy in general was a, right. a, a, a diplomatic fiction. Right. Only, so the you know, policy... only designed to accelerate the Sino-Soviet split. It's, right. def it's definitely dated. Yeah. But it was at, at the time, it was this weird diplomatic uh dance that we had to do around what our what our genuine interests in the region are and also you know our affinity towards nascent democracies i mean nobody knows where our, our nobody's you know vague about where our sympathies lie but it was a strategic decision yeah that deserves to be called strategic because it was a strategic aim to you know carve up the communist world in asia to yeah. our advantage yeah i mean 
uh, China when I heard it, gonna, China wasn't going to deal with us unless we said that they that 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 they had they had a legitimate claim on Taiwan, and so we said it, but we didn't mean it, and we haven't meant it for fifty years. We said it fifty years ago. We don't mean it. Taiwan is an independent nation that is a democracy and free and is one of the richest, you know, one of the 25 richest countries on earth or something like that. And it's got a lot of people and a war there would be psychotic because, you know, um, it's not easily taken. Uh, And, you know, if you think that the Russians have it bad in Ukraine, try taking the island of Formosa. I mean, look, if you you think if Joe Biden was asked, is our one China policy dated and should go? What do you think he would say? I don't think he would outright say no. But this is my point, which is every president has had this situation. It is China that is now getting weirdly aggressive toward Taiwan's independence, as opposed to simply rhetorically aggressive. And we have this world in which, um, I mean, the oddity was that Scott Pelley said, well, you know, the Chinese may be tempted. Look at what Russia's doing in Ukraine and that may tempt the Chinese to move on Taiwan, where I, I, I assume that the, the, Taiwan, the Chinese being rational people are looking at Russia and what's going on with Ukraine and saying, oh, boy, I maybe we should, we should maybe think about this a little, this thing about going into another country, you know, going into a country we think we own and trying to take it over is not going so well for Russia. And, you know, they're better at, ground war than we are historically and i don't know like you know it's a it's an odd moment to be having a taiwan conversation this is like the one time in the last eight eight or nine years since russia you know began its imperialist effort to swallow ukraine that there's a red light you know that there's a flashing yellow to red light thrown in china's path by what's actually going on in ukraine I when I heard Biden say it, and then I heard the voiceover saying that we spoke to officials who said, in fact, no, no, there was no change um, in this policy. My initial thinking was in line with no, as I thought, oh, well, that's that's bad because the administration uh, should speak with one voice, uh, you know, if, if nothing else. But then John had pointed out via text. Well, maybe this does create strategic ambiguity. Um Accidental or not, I think it is arguable that it may be better to have someone, in particular the president, commander in chief, say, yes, we would fight to defend Taiwan, even if that hangs out there as a contradiction of what other people in the administration are, are saying. I don't I don't there might be some benefit to that. I just don't know what's ambiguous about the commander in chief of the U.S. Armed Forces saying point blank, we're going to defend Taiwan with blood and treasure. Okay, let me just let me just put it this way. When we have had moral, there has been a moral stain because of a president getting out over his skis uh, in policy terms. Um, That was often the case with revolts in communist country uh, often. I mean, it was twice, really where uh, people got the idea that we would, you know, if you're in Hungary, that somehow we would help the Hungarians liberate themselves from from Soviet domination and the Iron Curtain from things that were being said by Dulles, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, and by Eisenhower himself, and that didn't happen and all this. Here, um, we're not doing anything. Like, the Taiwanese, the Taiwanese just want to be left alone. All the signaling here is toward China. And if China thinks that on the one hand, we are, you know, we we want don't want to change the one China policy because we don't want to ruffle things. But, you know, if push comes to shove, don't think that we can just sit idly by and watch you take over this free country that has been a free country for 73 years uh, and has made a wild success of itself. Uh, without us, you know, feeling morally obliged to make sure that you don't destroy the world system with in one fell swoop. I just don't see how that's a how that's bad because we're not we're not um, we're not being provocative. Like we're not provoking the Taiwanese to do anything. 
right? We're not, we're not, we're not giving the Taiwanese a green light. We're saying to the Chinese, watch yourself here. And maybe he gets a pass a little bit because we've been reasonably stalwart on Ukraine. Uh, you know, at some point we should have a conversation about it. liberals are now walk, walking around talking about what a magnificent job Biden has done on Ukraine. And I'm not I'm not there yet. I mean, he, he's been a, a lot better than I would have expected, except that, of course, the Ukrainians have been a thousand times better at this than we expected. And that has given him room not to go wobbly, really. Right. But, but I feel like I feel like we're really setting the bar so low for this president. And we've done it. We've, we've, the whole nation has had to do this since he was inaugurated. There's a kind of, you know, uh, we joke about how like whenever something doesn't go the administration's way, they always say, oh, you know, the people have disappointed Joe Biden and his administration by not doing what Joe Biden and his administration want them to do or to think or to feel. But there are these moments where leadership requires saying things that are boldly new or 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 kind of shocking to for the american people to hear often you know with with serious foreign policy implications and with serious uh, risks to the lives of americans who serve in our military i actually find it flippant and weird at the same time that a president will say yes we're going to we're going to send we're going to send our citizens to die for this country and then have you know five seconds later someone on the phone calling a TV producer to say, well, we don't really mean that. We're not sure. I'm not. I don't think that's strategic. I think it's a kind of confusion that we've just that's come to be our new normal. And you know, Trump had a version of it too with regard to foreign policy. And I don't think we should accept it as normal. I don't think it's really good for our country. I don't. I don't think it sends the message to the powerful people in other nations who we are worried about and whose power is growing, particularly in China. I don't think it sends the message we might believe it does. And and it doesn't actually make him, it doesn't give me confidence that he knows what his right hand is doing when his left hand is on 60 minutes. And so maybe that's not what most people think, but I I find it unnerving in the extreme that this is okay, how well, let's he go, does things. Okay, let's go to the unnerving part of the of the interview or the stuff or the where where Biden addresses this question of whether people find him unnerving, right? So uh Pelly said to him, look, you're uh you're the oldest president we've ever had. Uh, and he says, uh, he said, pretty good shape, huh? And then when Pelly says, well, what do you say to people who say you're not fit to be president? And Biden said, watch me. Honest to God, that's all I think. If you think I don't have the energy level or the mental acuity, but then he didn't finish the sentence. He just said, watch me if you think I don't have the energy level or mental acuity. I mean, I know when I sit down with my NATO allies, they're not thinking that I don't have it. And But then he said, it's a matter of the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Like, watch me. If you think that I am not fit, you're going to make a decision that way. I, and then he said, quote, I respect the fact that people would say, you know, you're old. But he has. I haven't observed anything that there aren't things I do now I don't do before. So, uh, are you becalmed, you guys? No. Okay. <laughs> no, not reassured. I can hear Kamala's cackle in my in my. <laughs> Look, here's the thing, and th that's a very important thing to bring up because I was thinking about this. Uh, today walking around for some reason which is like okay so there's biden he'll be 82 if he wins again in 2024 if he's inaugurated in 22 he'll be 82 years old right so there are very strong odds that one way or another kamala harris becomes president now i know all vice presidents have odds of becoming president right begin particularly in the last you know because there have been assassinations and whatever but I mean, this is really a thing where we are really voting 30 percent in 2024 for Harris being president at some point before uh, 2028. Can that possibly become an issue? I mean, I don't know how exactly. I mean, I guess sort of. 
retroactively we all decided that 2008 turned on a vice presidential nominee but i don't think that was as relevant at the time as we imagine it to be in our recollection of that election year and besides no, that, in fact, the, the, last data time a... the data suggested that she was helpful to yeah to exactly so like when was the last time i mean i don't know would in an alternate universe 1944 would have been a a big year for vice presidents on the ballot but was he was he that, asked directly if he's going to run again was that one of those CBS oh, yeah. questions he said i oh, have the okay. intention that's but not that, uh, i'm not gonna well, talk about get... strategic ambiguity that's no, but you know he can't say that he's gonna run again because the minute that he says that he's gonna run again trump is going through a little of this too stuff happens legally um i mean he may I don't even know if this is true of an informal I'm going to run again, but if he says he's going to run again, money that's raised has to be raised in a different way. The structure of campaign committees and the DNC and stuff immediately have to change stuff like that. He he hasn't set, he's not set up yet to run again, but he clearly said he was going to run again. Right, Abe? I mean, he said... No, no, no. I don't, I don't. I don't know. He said he said that's my intention. Right. But but he said what he sort of did a Trump thing. He sort of said, watch this space. Let me find the quote. Hold on. He said, like, uh, oh, my God, he's so old. I mean, no, I, I, I've got to say, no, while you try no, to find yeah, that, I don't know. If he, no, he said it's that remains to be seen. He right. Said. So that's not it's that's just not... an intention. But is it a firm intention, a firm decision that remains to be seen? But that's more like, I know what I'm doing. You'll see. You'll you know, that remains to be seen. I didn't take that as him saying, I really don't know if I'm going to do it. Um, To answer the question about, you know, whether I'm becalmed by his response about his age, uh, watch me. Um, And th- this is where the interview gets ridiculous. We have been watching him. That is that is why the question is there. We, we've been watching and listening as he shakes hands with the air, as he says things we don't understand. Um, you know, a, a little follow up question there wouldn't have wouldn't have killed wouldn't have killed Pelly. Well, you know, that's just because you don't understand know how. Yep. That is true. There's a lot to be said for know-how. Um, I was startled by the fact that in this interview of a man who has been president for almost two years, was vice president for eight years, ran for president for two years, and was in the Senate for 87 years before that, that he went back to how his wife and daughter died in a car crash and his son died of cancer. It's like, what are you, introducing Joe Biden to us, the guy has been 81 million people voted for him already. Like, you don't have to remind me. What is this? Like, every time George H.W. Bush was interviewed, they mentioned that his daughter Robin died of leukemia. Why doesn't that? Why didn't that ever happen? Because it would be crazy. It's like all they're saying is, oh, he's been touched by tragedy. It's like, really? Enough already with this. You know, he used it. He got it. It was a. It was obviously a plus for him running in 2019 and 20. He doesn't get to what are you, riding the the riding the victim train. Well, and with and the again, president with the, of the United States. But with the Biden and with Joe Biden in particular, there's something really uh, grating about how that's used when it's uh, when it's deemed appropriate by them. And when the minute someone says, "and and let's talk about your son Hunter," it's like, "No, no, we don't talk about Hunter. Hunter, well, Hunter is off was, limits." Hunter was brought up. Okay. Oh, they did bring him up. Okay. They did bring Hunter up. And he said, quote, there's not a single thing that I've observed that would affect me or the United States relative to my son, Hunter. But it was done by Scott Pelley going to the Republicans' pounce argument. That old favorite. are going to pounce on Hunter if they win the House or the Senate. And I wonder what you would like to say about your son because these Republicans are going to come after Hunter. And he said, I love my son, number one. He fought an addiction problem. He overcame it. He wrote about it. And that's when he said, and no, there's not a single thing I've observed that would affect me or the United States with respect to Hunter. Um, that is another example of where there are a billion follow-up questions there. Um, well, what can you say about the reports that... Uh, 
uh, plane was used uh, uh, to 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 bring Hunter and various business associates back and forth uh, from country to country or, or uh, who in your estimation is the big guy uh, who receives 10%. I, I'm not conspiracy theorizing. These are, this is what the news, this is what is relevant. Or that you knew that this was an actual legitimate thing and that Rudy Giuliani hadn't made it up and let all your allies claim that. that this was Russian disinformation and let media outlets shut down the New Maybe York the Post. And pressured, and pressured the, the big laptop. tech companies to suppress yeah. the information as well. And just yeah. let yeah. this happen and maybe you owe some people an apology, Mr. President. Well, uh, Hunter, uh, anyway, it's a, so he was at least, the Hunter question was, was raised but it was raised in the context it was danced around his yes. wife died his daughter died his son died you know now you know and he knows tragedy because he's also got this this son uh who was addicted to crack so that's really that's really great but um i just think it's amazing like you know, Ronald. Re- Imagine like Ronald. It's like Ronald Reagan's father was the town drunk, so he knows pain. Like where, where was that during the Reagan presidency? Uh, but we're in a different era now. We're in a, we're in, we're in a victimhood as sainthood era, and so you must no, be. Reagan must was a Republican, yes. and Biden is a Democrat. Well, That's there's some different. of that too, but honestly, I really think a lot of it's also yeah. the kind of hyper therapeutic language well, in which true. we discuss anyone's abilities. Well, that's true. You remember, I mean, it was a very startling moment in 2000 when Al Gore, uh, in his uh, acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention, spent five minutes talking about his son getting hit by a car in the parking lot at a in Baltimore, I guess, at a at a after after a game, and how he sat there by his bedside and all of this. And you had this moment of like, eh, this is unseemly because like Bush wouldn't talk about robin the elder bush he didn't he he wouldn't talk about robin and barbara certainly wouldn't talk about robin and it was just generationally different on the one hand it was also seemed exploitative on gore's part and it doesn't seem i mean biden didn't bring up neela and and you know and and Bo, I mean, it was Pelly that brought up Neil and Bo. But he and... spent a lot of time on the campaign trail when he ran for president, bringing that up. It, it and an is... office, yes. and an office. Yes. He, he, he. Well, he, he does this like I know pain. I've been down well at post Afghanistan press conference. Remember yeah. that? Do you remember oh, yeah. that? That was horrifying. I did not like that when yeah. he brought up his. his yeah. yeah. Yes, he's experienced well, so tragedy. That's Scott but... Pelly. So yeah, but so he's always going to have that backstop right i mean that's one of the things that the pelly that this interview reveals is that biden is always going to have uh even if he really screws up and they think he's got to go or whatever it's all going to be framed in terms of how you know just he's just maybe had one too many emotional blows in his life and yeah i did that but that whatever i don't know um, we didn't even get to the astounding and disgusting New York Times story claiming that it was a Russian bots that led our friend Armin Rosen a tablet to expose the disgusting anti-Semitic filth and slime that ran the Women's March and that somehow uh, the reputational decline of Linda Sarser, the person who ran the Women's March, was the result of, of a Russian bot farm rather than great investigative reporting by tablet and, and her own raging anti-Semitism. And her own raging anti-Semitism. Matter of record. I'm walking around saying that, you know, this is a, you know, like the, the, talking about good jihads against other Americans and things like that. And there's a 5,000 word story in the New York Times about this by Ellen Barry, whose name should now be put on a list with Walter Durante because this piece adduces absolutely no evidence to suggest that this story what became a real thing because of Russian bots. Like it's a whole story about how there were Russian bots and someone found a list of nasty names for the women's March that could be disseminated by a Russian bot farm. And then this turned into people getting really disgusted and angry at Linda Sarsour for being a disgusting anti-Semitic pig. And somehow we are all 
this is all because we are being manipulated by Russian bots. I don't need to be uh, manipulated by a Russian bot to see my enemy and see somebody who hates me and wants me dead. And I will happily go for a jugular and praise Tablet Magazine for doing what it did to destroy her reputation. And she complains at the end of this piece that she's not getting wonderful diversity jobs in nonprofit organizations so that she could cash out on her filth. And we are supposed to feel sorry for her. I mean, like Dean Baquette, like go do your job. Or is it Dean? I don't even know if Dean, but Joe, whatever his name is, rich guy, rich, rich Joe Khan, son of the head of the son of a billionaire, like do your job. And you know what? Don't defame your own people either. There's a great quote, by the way, or a great caption to one of the photos in this in this piece. And it has, you know, of course, the sunlight streaming in on Linda Sarsour and she's staring off into the middle distance. And she says, Miss Sarsour recalled the overwhelming torrent of attacks. I mean, just imagine, she said, every day that you woke up, you were a monster. And I thought I just nodded. I'm like, yeah, that's true. You are a monster. She's so, been one by for the a way, long time. Barry wrote about this in the time. Barry Weiss wrote about this in The Times in 2017. She wrote a piece detailing Linda Sarsour's bigotry, uh, 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 Tamika Mallory's uh, interest in 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 uh, Nation of Islam, Nation of Islam (laughs) and and, and Louis Farrakhan at the time. So were were New York Times employees merely being swayed by Russian bots? Bad ones. Bad ones who had to be ousted from the New York Times because right. they made them feel unsafe. Right. You know, speaking of which, Barry Weiss roast November 13th, commentary.org slash roast, buy a table, buy a seat, buy a ticket. Come join us. It's going to be fantastic. All right. Commentary after dark. Off the Once rails. again comes to an end. <laughs> Uh, I will not be around uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, so I will be leaving this in the capable hands of my colleagues, who are, of course, Abe, Christine, and Noah, and for them and me, John Podhortz, keep the camel burning.